Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 13. So when I preach in the evenings, I generally am preaching my way through the Psalter. And we've come to Psalm 13, and let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. Psalm 13, the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. How does our perspective shape the way that we pray, and how does it shape the way that we think about the difficult circumstances in our lives? We have just read a portion of the story of Joseph. And uh, the psalmist tells us that God's word was testing him uh, in the midst of those difficult, difficult providences. So, for example, how does our creaturely perspective affect the way we look at our circumstances? As creatures bound by time and space, we're limited in our knowledge, in our ability to understand and to put all the difficulties of life together. All of its pain and pressures, all of its injustices, all of its sin and misery. How does that affect our perspective? And how do uh, these limitations figure into the way that we relate to the Lord? How does our perspective on the Lord affect the way we think about our circumstances? It's not just the fact that we're creatures. We're creatures in relationship to an infinite creator who's unbound and does not share these same limitations. How does our knowing what he has revealed about himself, about his power, about his goodness, his kindness, how does that inform and shape our perspective on our circumstances? Does it humble us? Does it comfort us? Does it make us angry at him? Uh, Does it make us mock and scoff at his existence? Or if we affirm his existence, does it make us say something like, that kind of God is not worthy of worship? Let me suggest that our perspective is incredibly important. And I want to illustrate this for you with a parable. Jesus told lots of parables, lots of stories, Uh, This one will not be as good as his. But I think it might be useful. I I want you to imagine a father and son who have gone on a hunting trip together. 
right? And they've had this extraordinarily wonderful time. They've had great conversation. They've been hunting all day, and, and now they're headed back uh, to their campsite. Their rifles are slung across their back. And as they're walking through the woods, they get a little bit separated from each other, as sometimes happens. Uh, the dad is out ahead. The son is trailing behind a little bit, and he can no longer see his dad through the trees. But then suddenly, his dad steps back into view. And his dad makes a couple of very abrupt uh, steps toward his son. And the son can just tell that there's something wrong. Some, something is different. His dad's countenance has changed. He's no longer relaxed and jovial. He, he no longer seems like he's having fun. Now he's tense and, and it looks like he's angry, even threatening. And by the way that he's looking at his son, it seems that he's angry at him. And so the son says, Dad, are you okay? But instead of giving any assurance of his love, he simply bores down on his son with his eyes and says in this disturbingly harrowing tone, Stop. And the son in his confusion says, Stop what? He'd be happy to stop if he knew what was bothering his dad, but he doesn't understand. Something has come over him, and, and so he says, he says, Dad, but he can barely get the words out of his mouth when suddenly the situation escalates. And his dad raises his rifle and points it directly at his son's head. And now the son is really freaking out. He doesn't understand why his dad is like this. He doesn't understand his dad, who has been so calm, so good his entire life. Why is he pointing a gun at his head? And so with tears in his eyes, he begins to complain and protest. Dad, I, I don't understand. What are you doing? I don't know what you want from me. And that's when his dad pulls the trigger. And the son stands there as time stands still. And he hears that concussive explosion of the rifle. And he hears the bullet go whizzing past his ear. And he's standing there in total disbelief, dazed and confused. He's hurt and betrayed, and he doesn't understand when suddenly a full-grown 200-pound mountain lion crashes dead at his feet from behind him, shot in the head. And suddenly it all becomes clear. His dad was not angry with him. He wasn't being harsh. He wasn't being cruel. He hadn't gone crazy. He was protecting him. Even at that moment where it seemed that the rifle was pointed right at his head, it only appeared that way. In fact, his sights were trained on what the son could not see on the lion that was prowling behind him. But the son, with his limited perspective, to him it appeared from everything he could read about his circumstances, it appeared that his dad was angry and ready to kill him. That's the way it looked. Your perspective matters. 
It's not a perfect analogy. It's not a perfect parable. But I I hope it at least begins to get the wheels turning because I think something like that is going on in this psalm. Beloved, we do not see the end from the beginning. We do not see or understand how all of God's providence works its way out in our lives or in this world. Our perspective is the perspective of the psalmist. It's the perspective of Job struggling to understand our suffering, struggling to understand the suffering of others, genuinely crying out to God for answers with honest and painful questions. You remember the way that Job cries out to God and God answers. God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And God goes on to remind Job that in spite of what he thinks he understands about the way the world works, he actually sees very, very little. He sees with the perspective of a creature. God's questions to Job are, of course, rhetorical. And God is not uh, asking Job these questions just to put him in his place. He is doing that. He is reminding him of his creatureliness. But he's not doing this to belittle him. God is trying to help Job understand that even though Job can't work it all out, he can. God is driving Job back to what he has revealed about himself. Not to humiliate him, but to comfort him. To comfort him with his awesome power and understanding and goodness. And what goes on for us and what goes on for Job is going on for David in this psalm. The psalm begins with David crying out in pain and complaint against God. He feels frustrated. He feels forgotten. He doesn't understand God's providence toward him. But the psalm ends with a very different perspective. As pain is replaced with praise and complaint is replaced with comfort. And what makes the difference for David is that through prayer, he is brought face to face with who God is. Through prayer, he is reminded of what he knows of God. So that even though to the eyes of his flesh, it may appear otherwise, to the eyes of his faith, he finds that God is in fact for him and not against him. This psalm, like so many of the psalms, has a very deliberate structure Uh, It's structured very neatly into three sets of two verses each. The first set of verses is filled with pain and confusion as David cries out for deliverance with those poignant words, How long, O Lord? We hear David praying through the midst of his pain. The second set is marked by petition as David reasons with God and calls him to answer as he cries out. And so we consider David's prayerful petitions. And finally, the third set moves us away from pain and petition. And it moves us into praise as David is able to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord and sing praises to his name. And so those will be our points this evening. 
David's praying with pain, his praying with petition, his praying with praise. And as we begin, David's pain reminds us that this psalm is a lament. Uh, As Warren Bennett says, I happen to listen to Pastor Warren's sermon on this excellent sermon. He says, it's the kind of song that you sing in a minor key. It begins with this fourfold repetition of this question, how long, O Lord? Has your soul ever asked that question? And probably repeatedly like the psalmist? Four times, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We don't know what historical events have occasioned this question. Different commentators speculate on different events. The fact is we don't know. It's not specified for us. I think that's helpful. I think it helps us to take this question in our own hearts What I think we can say is that this question, how long, implies that David has been experiencing and enduring something that, at least to his mind, has been going on for a long time. He's at the point of cracking. He doesn't feel he can endure anymore. And though we don't know what it is, whatever it is, it's the sort of thing that leaves him in turmoil It's like he's being hit on every front. You notice that there are three sorts of fronts that he feels attacked by. There's this theological front. He feels that God has forgotten him. Uh, There's a psychological front. He's, He's personally in toil and turmoil. And then there's a sociological aspect to this as he has an enemy, somebody who is after him, someone who is being exalted over him. And it's like on every side, uh, he is under the gun. And you can, you can hear the description of his anxiety and agony as he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Does God forget anything? The infinite, omniscient God? No. Forgetting? And remembering in the Bible, those things are tied to God's covenant promises to his people. It's not just that David feels like he's slipped God's mind here. He feels as though God is not treating him like a son. As though they had no relationship. As though there was no covenant of grace. Like God is not making good on His promises. Like God has forgotten that covenant, steadfast love. The Hebrew word hesed that that speaks of God's covenantal commitment to His people. And you, you hear that in the next line. How long will you hide your face from me? That's an allusion to the ironic blessing. The blessing that I say over you every week. 
where God promised to bless and keep his people, to make his face shine upon them and be gracious to them. But David says, how long will you hide your face from me? It's, it's not just that his face is not shining upon him. It's like God won't even look him in the eyes. Like, like when you can't make eye contact with somebody. And this, together with the distress that he's having in his own head, how, how long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I think the point here is that his distress is completely consuming him. It's all he can think about. You ever have that kind of problem, that kind of distress? Every, all kinds of things are going on, but you're in the shower and all you can think about is this one problem. And then you're making breakfast, and it's all you can think about. And then you're in the car driving to work, and you don't even remember the drive, because by the time you get there, all you've been doing is obsessing about this problem. It's like your heart is so burdened with this one thing that you're having conversations within your own soul, taking counsel in your soul. In the case of David, it seems that the trouble, the presenting cause of his distress is an enemy. Someone hostile to David. Someone who is actively opposing his reign as king. And since David is God's appointed king, those who oppose David necessarily oppose God himself, right? David's enemy is God's enemy. And that only complicates the situation, (laughs) Because the enemies of God are exalted over me. How long, O Lord? How long will you stand for this? I think it's important to say, though, that this question, how long, is not a cry of unbelief. It's faith-seeking understanding. It's not unbelief. Like in that parable earlier, the son cries out, why are you doing this? Because he cannot put together in that moment how a father as good and kind and loving to him his whole life would now seek him harm. So here David has the whole history of God's faithfulness. He trusts in his promises, but he looks at his circumstances and he cannot reconcile it with God's promises. He cannot reconcile God's providence with his promises. How long, O Lord? It's the same cry that we hear from the martyrs in Revelation 6. Remember when the sixth seal is opened? And you have these martyrs, those who have been killed for their testimony to Christ, and they are crying out. Listen to what they cry. They cry, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? You notice how the question is put up against the sovereignty and the holiness and the truth of God. Sovereign, holy, true God, how long? How long before you avenge? It seems to be at odds with God's very character. You know what the martyrs are told? Rest a little longer. 
until the full number of your fellow servants and your brothers should be complete who are to be killed themselves. The tension is not going to get better before it gets worse. It's going to be more acute, not less acute. And that's the case with David, as is so often the case with us. There are times when to the eyes of our flesh, God's providence just does not seem to square with God's promises. There are times when it seems like God is pointing his arrows directly at our hearts. And at least one of the things that this psalm teaches us is that God would have us be honest with him. I think sometimes we feel that, you know, if I was a really good Christian, then I would never ask this question to God. If I really trusted in God's sovereignty, I would never ask this question. The martyrs trusted in God's sovereignty. David trusted in God's sovereignty. But how can I admit this? How can I, how can I admit this feeling between the difficulty of what I see with my eyes and what God has said to be true? And I just want to say that's okay. It's okay to honestly express your confusion and pain to the Lord even while you confess theologically and rightly that God is sovereign, holy, and true, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, it's okay to say, I don't see how. We can confess that and still cry out, how long, O Lord? Which brings us to our next point. As we See, in this next couplet, David praying with these petitions. Look at verses 3 through 4. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David's pain just overflows into petition as he says, Look and answer And light up my eyes. Uh, What your ESV translates as consider is the word look. I think it's the counterpart to David's feeling like God won't look at him. Look at me. Answer me. Light up my eyes. He wants God to turn his face toward him. It's interesting to me that these are all imperatives. There's a commanding sort of sense to them. There is a boldness that David takes with the Lord. But if he's bold in this prayer, it's because of the way he appeals to him as, Oh, Yahweh, my God. He uses God's covenant name. That name that speaks of their covenant relationship. And he says, Oh, Lord, My God, he's bold because he has this relationship with him. He calls on him and evokes that name, which God said when he declared it, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
That's what the name Yahweh signifies to David. It signifies his faithfulness, that he is true, and that that is steadfast, and he can count on it. Lord, you are my God. Light up my eyes. Light up my eyes is a Hebrew idiom. It it means to have this sort of sense of your vigor and life returned to you. It's used, remember when Jonathan... Uh, and he, he's just uh, defeated all the Philistines, and he comes, and he's just famished, and he finds that little bit of honey, and he takes the honey. And it says that his eyes were lighted up as he ate it. We might say it, put the sparkle back in my eyes. The distress has taken its soul so deeply that David feels like he's, he's on the brink of death, like the light is going out. And so he prays, and he reasons with the Lord. He gives three reasons that correspond to the three imperatives. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. To put it simply, he is to the point now that he feels like this enemy who has been exalted over him is going to prevail. He's losing. They're winning. And in prevailing, the enemy will exalt over him and rejoice. And David is cracking. He's cracking under his circumstances. But he's doing the right thing. He's praying. He's putting his soul out before the Lord. He's making his desires very clear. Like our shorter catechism says, prayer is an offering up of our desires to the Lord for things that are agreeable to his will. And David is not praying contrary to God's will. In fact, I would say that it It's the fact that David knows God's will that makes enduring this pain that much more difficult. He knows that it is God's will to prosper him in his kingship, to give him an enduring kingdom, one that will never lack a descendant to sit on the throne, one that will be high and lifted up. And yet, God is allowing this enemy to be exalted over him. And so he prays and he cries out, but something marvelous happens between verse 4 and verse 5 in that little white space in your Bibles. Like Jonathan when he tasted that honey, something happens that lights up David's eyes, that brings the sparkle back. And that brings us to our final point. As David's pain and as his petitions turn to praise, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Did you hear the minor chord change to a major chord? Something has changed. But what has changed? Has David's circumstances changed? No. 
In fact, not at all. What has changed is not David's circumstances. It's not God's providence to him, but it's his perspective. It's like the Lord has used his prayers to reorient him to reality, to what he knows about the Lord. So on the one hand, though nothing has changed, on the other hand, it's like everything has changed. Through faith now, he is able to see through his circumstances to the way that things actually are. He's able to look through his circumstances to the unchanging character and love of God. God's love toward him has not changed. His salvation is as sure as it has ever been. I have trusted in your steadfast Love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I think what this means, I think it means that at any given point in our lives, we might be crying out, how long, O Lord? We might be raw and broken and feel like we've come to the end of ourselves, and yet we might at the very same time cry out in faith, I trust in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I think that that strange tension is characteristic of the life of faith. That somehow the life of faith manages to put together pain and praise. It manages to put together God's difficult providences with His promises. It manages to put together despair and delight. And all of those things come together at the cross, don't they? As we've been noting all along throughout this series on Psalms, The Psalms are the songs of Jesus. Can you hear Jesus singing this psalm? From one angle, there's deep agony. Jesus experiences the same three sorts of trouble. He's personally distressed. He sweats drops of blood. He prays, take this cup from me. There comes a point where God seems to be absent from him where it seems that the Father has turned His face away, that He will not look in favor on His Son as He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And we know it seems that His enemies are prevailing over Him so that they mock Him and rejoice over Him as He sleeps the sleep of death. All of those circumstances lead you to believe that God has abandoned His Son. If you're just looking at it from the outside perspective. It's all the curse. And yet from another angle, there is this profound delight. Jesus does not go begrudgingly to the cross. He goes willingly and readily, ready to lay his life down, to be crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. He goes truly rejoicing in the salvation of God as he goes to accomplish that salvation. And if this is the case for Christ, then we can clearly say, beloved, that it is possible to be living squarely in the will of God and yet feel abandoned and forsaken at the same time. 
to know that you are right where God has you to be and to feel utterly abandoned. To know that this feeling is not, it's just not always the result of sin on our part. That certainly was not the case for Christ. According to his human nature, Jesus sympathizes with us. He feels and experiences the very sort of personal angst that David experienced, that we experience. It's a mark of faith that holds on to God even when we cannot see or understand what is going on. I I quoted Calvin last week in my sermon. I'm going to quote the same quote tonight. Calvin says, Our circumstances often appear in opposition to the promises of God. Our circumstances often appear in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded by corruption. He declares and accounts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is gracious and propitious and benevolent toward us, yet all outward signs threaten his wrath. What are we to do? We must close our eyes, disregard ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Beloved, it's good and it's right for us to bring our feelings into God's presence. But we must also bring God's presence into our feelings. There's no shame in saying, Lord, why have you forgotten me as long as we say, Lord, in Christ, you will never forget me. We sing the gospel in a minor king so that we might sing it in a major key. We remember that in our suffering, our perspective on pain is not the whole picture. We don't see it all. We see this moment, in this space, in this time. I think one day in glory we will look back on our lives and we will have a far greater sense of what God was at work to do. In that day, that prowling lion who seeks after your soul will lay dead at your feet. Until then, beloved, let us lift up the eyes of our faith with confidence that God is still who he has ever been, that he has dealt bountifully with us, that his steadfast love never changes, and that we can sing of his salvation even as we sing, how long? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for how raw they are. We thank you that we might take them up into our own hearts and souls and sing them even as our Savior sang them. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for the providences that he went through for us and for our salvation. And we thank you for the comfort that brings us to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So tribulation or famine or nakedness or distress or peril or sword... Lord, these are horrible, cursed things. All things that might make us to question your providence. And yet, Lord, we can look at the cross and we can say, no, nothing 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be honest about the ways that we feel about your providence, that we would look to you with our grief and our pain, but, Lord, we pray that you would bring us along that pathway from pain through petition to praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.